0: Hey everybody, it's Kim, the host of Multiracial White Boy. How you doing? Today we have a guy that I've been looking forward to having on this show. I've wanted to talk to him. He is Tehran. He is an actor. He is a comedian, television, radio personality, entertainer of African American and Persian descent. And I'm telling you, this guy is so smart. You better keep up. This is Tehran. We met at the Mixed Roots Film Festival where you did your stand-up, and I'm like, who is this dude? You claimed yourself as the most dangerous man in America.
1: True. Well, it's because I'm half black, half Persian. So uh, Iranian immigrant father, black African-American mother, and that combination is extremely dangerous and volatile in the United States, especially given the current political climate we look upon ourselves right now.
0: I wanted to talk to you because you're a comedian, man. And I feel like I've gotten more insight in regards to stuff from Chris Rock and Dave Laschabella sometimes.
1: Yeah, of course. Here's the, here's the concept. We all know what comedy does. We laugh. Ha, ha, ha. It's funny. A lot of people think of comedians as, as entertainment or clowns. But the truth of the matter is good comedy makes you laugh. Great comedy makes you think. No one has made you think about race relations more than Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock. No one's made you more aware of the political stratosphere that we've been inside uh, for a long time now more than Jon Stewart, Trevor Noah, Stephen Colbert, Samantha Bee, these are all simply comedians. John Oliver is a comedian. They are
0: telling more truth right now than these these journalists. I feel exactly. like these journalists are asking questions like why do you are are you racist why? But like they're they're providing so much more insight.
1: They are and it's teaching with the concept of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. So conceptually speaking comedians are in a special position. We Bring our own walls down, which allows you, the audience, to bring your walls down too. And we don't preach, we reach. And a lot of us reach a lot of people. We are connection at this mixed festival in which I performed comedy, and if you realize, I made everyone laugh, but if you think about it, afterwards, these conversations were being had and the absurdity of some of the things that I was saying came to light, and it makes sense, and you think about it, and it gives people perspective, especially people like myself and you, who have these mixed racial identities and this very unique perception and perspective that has never been told because it hasn't been as prevalent as it is in the modern day.
0: Where did you grow up, man?
1: So I'm from Washington, D.C., and I'm definitely a very D.C. person. And interestingly enough about the hats, I've been wearing hats with my name on it since high school. So I've always been about personal branding, and it really comes down to my name being Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, and how much that affected people or it confronted people or conflicted people where all they knew about Tehran The capital of iran was simply the perception of the media or at least the sensationalized media where it basically seems like the capital of a terrorist or rogue nation but it's much more than that and removing the political identity tehran is the capital of iran and iran is not its government it's its people and the people are amazing warm wonderful people as Anthony Bourdain or anyone who's ever traveled there can experience. And so by wearing Tehran, it always started conversations. It always started, uh, and sometimes even unfortunately, arguments, but at the very core was the education. At least we're starting a dialogue. We're having communication about it.
0: By wearing just something that says Tehran, we have, and that's why I'm doing this podcast, is to dissolve my own ignorant perceptions. And the wearing of Tehran a hat it embodies all those negative stereotypes but when you put it on a person and you're like i'm an individual let's talk
1: exactly it's
0: more than just all the negative stereotypes
1: exactly and and you have that background too because you are asian and caucasian which ironically you would think caucasian where did that come from like where's the asian and caucasian right but the concept is people look at you and you could easily pass
0: growing up though Before you knew of the stereotypes of Tehran, you had to learn them. What moments growing up informed you about your own identity being a Black individual and also a Persian individual?
1: Well, it's interesting. A lot of different moments in my life brought these things to life. Uh, um, Specifically, I remember specific points. When I was Five and my father was coming to pick me up from school, my father, who's very Persian-looking. And the teachers couldn't fathom how this Persian man with an accent was the father of this, what they thought was a singularly African-American child. They could not connect the two. And my father's just basically pushing through the teachers, picking me up, is like, this is my son. Like, he didn't even understand what was exactly going on I'm feeling the love in that moment. That was one of those moments that stuck out in my mind. Uh, When I was eight and and a teacher basically called me out on having Tehran as a name and purposely would mispronounce my name, and I expressed to them how even a parrot could repeat my name if I said it enough times, and that they were less intelligent than a parrot. Sure, at the time I got in trouble, but it was something I stood up for. It was simply because I will not allow myself to be degraded or decimated under the guise of assimilation, right? Because that's not what we're here for. That's not even what America's about. It's not about assimilation. It's about different cultures coming together. We all heard this, this wonderful myth growing up that America was a melting pot. A melting pot. A melting pot means you pour in all these ingredients and they're so combined, you can't really tell the difference, but you respect it but it turns out America's more like a salad. And if you don't like lettuce, let's throw away the lettuce. If you don't like tomatoes, let's throw away the tomatoes. No.
0: I agree with this idea, Taran, I'm glad you brought this up because I feel like that we're now in this moment that these younger kids are pulling this veil over and going, eh, that ain't it. In other words, if you're gonna take credit for all the winning and all the, how beautiful and integrated we are, you gotta take credit for all the bad shit as well.
1: I agree. That's actually an excellent point you just made, is that while we have this concept and notion of all these good things, we're like that family that wants to keep the secrets inside the home. And we only tell, uh, we only talk about how great our kid is, but we forget to mention the kid's drug problem. And then it starts spiraling out of control until now the kid's on the street, just on Hollywood Boulevard, giving out hand jobs for five bucks. And we're like, wait, how did that happen? I thought, I thought Mike was an all American but that's why we need to talk about them. That's the first step to fixing any problem, is awareness. Awareness and confronting the problem. So when you
0: advocated for your own name? 100%. What was that awareness to them? How was that, how were they confronted with that?
1: You know, it's interesting. Because I advocated for my name, other kids in that same class who had, who had foreign-sounding names or difficult names to this particular teacher, whether it was Jamal, Jamil, or a kid named Rajiv, they all spoke up about their names as well because they were tired of hearing their names. The most beautiful thing that each one of us hears is our own name. It's the word that we've heard the longest in our lives. It's, it's what we've, we've connected to our identities. So in, what's in a name? Everything, everything is in a name. And so being able for someone to pronounce or at least respectfully attempt to pronounce your name is extremely important. It's extremely important, whether that person's name is Joseph, whether that person's name is Jamal It doesn't matter. We as entities, as humans, should be able to respect one another and try. And yeah. so it started there. That's when my advocacy started.
0: So as far as being an advocate and standing up for yourself, did your parents help you do that? Or did you have to do that by yourself?
1: Oh, well, I got in trouble. I got in trouble when I came home. But then when I expressed to my parents why I got in trouble, my, my parents were extremely proud of me. And I remember that. So they're very supportive of my advocacy and of my uh, self, self-pride and self-love. They're very, they've always been supportive of that.
0: The same way that we don't talk about money, same way that we don't talk about, like you were saying, what's going on inside the family, we don't talk at all about racism. And it's always unexpected when you hear it, and it's usually negative. Did, you, did your father or your mother have the talk with you about what to expect as given your, your heritage, your unique heritage?
1: It's interesting because each parent had the opposite talk with me, right? So my, racial, man. my Iranian father talked to me about what it's like to be Black in America and how to be careful because he was afraid. Now that he had a Black child, he became extremely or hyper aware of all the realities of Black stereotypes, Black confrontations with police when I was getting my car or when I was walking to school. He was the one to talk to me about that. My mother kind of glimpsed over it, but. My my father spoke to me at length about it because he was confronting his own prejudices at the time and realizing how those prejudices could possibly affect me. And on the flip side, my mother and her family spoke to me about the dangers of being Iranian and flying and not being stopped by the FBI because we lived in Washington, D.C. and when I had Tehran on my license plate and all of these all of these stereotypes. And they were hyper-aware of it because now that they had a uh, middle eastern child in their in their in their midst with myself and my siblings now it became something that they cared about as well and that's where we need the concepts of empathy it's easiest when it's a close friend or family member it's most difficult when it's a stranger but the concept is if you're my friend you care too
0: in a white predominantly white society can they both empathize and identify with the ongoing problems that you and your family have been facing in minorities and more specifically black people. When I feel like what James Baldwin said is that I don't know if I hate you. And I don't know if you hate me. I don't know if you're even racist, but I do know we live in a segregated society and you don't know what's going on inside my wall. And I don't know what's going on inside of the other side of the wall. However, is it capable because we're so separated we are divided we are very divided yeah. we
1: all know and for, before anyone dis- disagrees let me just point it out yeah does second.
0: that make any, did that question make any sense of
1: course it did okay it, it's easy because people love to deny that we're divided yet when i say compton you know I mean black people. When I say Inglewood, you know I mean black people. When I say East Hollywood or Brentwood, you know, or Calabasas, I mean white people. If I say Beverly Hills, you know I mean Iranian people, Persian people. If I say Glendale, you know I mean Armenian people. The fact that you can know this simply by the residence or geographic location of what I'm speaking of, that tells you all you need to know about American society. We are still very much divided very much divided and it's very difficult for a white person to understand at times because it's almost as if they're so far removed if you ask a white person ask a white person something simple and be like when was the last time you were the only white person at your job because that happens frequently to a lot of people of color whether they're asian indian black brown whatever it may be it does actually happen often and it's or not just in a
0: privileged school or something exactly. they even feel like they belong less
1: exactly let's look at it the exact same way in private schools and here's the problem i can understand what people well the population's less sure but when there are populations we they live in pockets so why are, is the population statistically still less in those progressive areas and it still exists so there is a constant divide and segregation a de facto segregation that exists in the the different races or skin tones in the united states but the fact is that now more than ever what we have to look forward to is that there are so many so many non people of color allies and accomplices within these racially aware movements there are people who if not willing to help are the most willing to listen and that's something we haven't seen before historically, now on the flip side, this is also the most stubborn we've seen people because before you could always give the excuse that we didn't have the accessibility to information, but now we have we have the most access to information ever, and yet people still refuse to listen. That is the most evil.
0: Is it because they have such, and what I grew up with as a we have a precious. A fundamental idea about this country that you and I bought into as children. Sure. And we still do. All these negative things that are being brought up, these atrocities, is difficult for them to wrap their head around.
1: It's extremely difficult. And oftentimes we see accountability will always feel like an attack when you're not ready to accept responsibility. And that's where we're at in many situations where people nation and this country is not ready to accept responsibility. And that's why accountability is so difficult. It's difficult to see it's not justice for all when everyone around you seems to be getting justice. But that seems to clearly not be the case. So why the resistance? Why the resistance? It's the same way, the same person who doesn't believe corona exists because it hasn't affected them will not believe racism exists if it hasn't affected them them in
0: their community or exactly. someone close to them. I've said that, yes. A hundred percent,
1: a hundred percent. Racism is even more of an abstract idea than Corona, which is extremely finite and, yes. and, and existence and scientific, and yet people still denounce the existence of Corona. How do you think they're going to assort themselves with racism? In regards to community, what what was your
0: community like growing up?
1: Well, it's interesting. In Washington, D.C. and in the surrounding suburban areas, it's very diverse. Still, of course, in the suburbs, you still do have this majority of white people, white population and white people. However, the concept is Washington, D.C. itself is much more of a melting pot than most places in, in the United States. You see a lot of affluent African-American families extremely educated. You see a lot of affluent Latinx families extremely educated. You see a lot of affluent immigrant families extremely educated. So it's a lot harder to dissect and discern things when you have an educated and affluent population because they have self-protection and self-awareness of their rights. It's, it's much more difficult to oppress an educated person. It's much more which is why even during slavery they outlawed reading for slaves it's much more difficult to oppress an educated person which is why in my family and i always promote the idea as a minority it's extremely extremely important we receive as much education and take advantage of the united states uh, educational system which makes access much easier than it is in most places in the world Of course, we're not counting any of the Scandinavian nations, which do everything right. But we do have access. Now the rest takes money. So we can always donate to these college funds and help each other receive education. But something that happened in DC that was very interesting is there was placism. You need to know your place. It wasn't just about race. It was also about- Explain placism, yes. Placism. We saw placism, actually, in the instance of the phone caller in uh, in New York in Central Park called the police. Exactly. And, and yeah, Sarah Christian
0: Cooper. Uh, exactly. so troubling, so disturbing that manufactured emotional incident it was fucking crazy. Exactly.
1: And why? Why was it disturbing? Not because something happened, but because you saw a person who attempted to weaponize racism. They attempted, they knew the the statistical probability of conflict between an African American and the police, and they exploited that fact in order to weaponize racism for their own benefit. That's why that was so dangerous. This is what we mean about systemic or systematic racism, right? So the concept was, wasn't just racism, it was placism. Know your place. Mm. You don't have your places not to tell me the privileged what I should or should not be allowed to do. That was the whole conflict. This is my place. I I have Central Park. I took over Seneca Seneca Village. We took eminent domain, and now this is ours. And you, you, you minority, you, you lesser than me. You don't have the right to tell me the higher up in the social hierarchy what to do, even though what you're saying is technically correct.
0: Right. You know, I was listening to um, a guy who's a criminal justice. Journalist named Jamiles Larte. He's terrific. Brilliant. You you know who he is. Yes. Okay. I listened to him on Terry Gross and he said something really interesting. I want to get your thoughts about it. Because he talked about the Sarah Cooper incident and he talked about policing, and that he didn't believe, he wasn't of the onus that all cops are sociopaths. His theory was this, his philosophy was this. What you get out of what we're seeing with people like George Floyd and the ongoing police brutality. It's not what you're getting in the police department. It's been an ongoing thing forever about how our value has been for black people. So if, you, if we can not change the value of black people in society, it's not gonna change in a, in a police department if we want real change.
1: Have it resonates like very well, and I'll explain stiff. to you why. We don't realize this. However, even insurance companies, pay out less for the death of a black child than they do for a white child, not based on racism, but based on societal implicit value in which a white child has much more potential to earn more than a black child would. Uh Over time, it's a simple algorithm in a mathematical equation. It's unbiased. They simply place the facts. When you bring
0: something like that up to a white person, what is their initial reaction? Because this is the first time I've heard that, I'll admit.
1: This is a true statement. This isn't my opinion. Oh, I know.
0: I, I, you're one of the yeah. fucking so educated and well-read people. But why? What, what is the reaction you get from something that is that truthful and that, that obvious?
1: Well, first of all, it's, of course, denial. Second of all, then it becomes making excuses. Remember, simply a fact that they denied a minute before, once they find out it is a fact, they simply go into justification mode instead of trying to understand. It's like, well, if this is the case, then it must be something, or it must be maybe these kids, or maybe it's this, and it's like, you didn't even know this existed, and now you're already defending it. That's the Dunning-Kroger effect in full effect. You are you are something that you were incompetent in, now you're trying to f- claim full competency. Be aware, just knowing the facts and understanding, yes, society places less value on Black individuals in this country. It is true. Now, when it comes to racism in the police department, I do not believe every single police officer's intent is to be racist, not at all. In fact, I believe it's a very small, unfortunately loud minority. Here is my problem. We are not protesting police. We're not anti-police, we're simply anti-police brutality. Everyone in America should be on board for this. More importantly, it's good police have a noble and extremely difficult job. Good police are here to protect and serve. Good police want to catch criminals because criminals are the detriment of society. Bad police officers, those who abuse their power, bad police officers, are therefore, by definition, criminals. And good police should want to catch criminals. That is the problem. It's their silence, this blue wall of silence that's compliance. It's an enabling behavior. If we were in a family, once again, going back to that family unit and the secretive nature of it, and we we had a family member that was doing wrong, and through our silence or through our enabling, we're allowing them to continue to do something wrong, whether it's drug use, alcohol abuse, or otherwise, then we would be just as much at fault. And we see this in psychological terms all the time. Why not apply it to the larger entity in which silence is compliance? When you see police officers frequently lying, when you see cameras conveniently falling off, when they're in the case of doing something wrong and yet, somehow always staying on when it's in the case of them doing something right then at some point it's statistically improbable at some point it's a problem that we need to fix not because we hate police but because we love society
0: going back to the family unit if the family unit is protecting their children more than the values of society isn't that the problem
1: it's when the family when the family unit believes that their children have the greater good over society. In fact, a good family would want their children to become positive, energetic, contributing factors to society. Yes. And that's when a good family would say, "We have a problem. Let's take you to rehab. Let's let's talk. Let's have that that meeting. Let's let's discuss. We can work this because it's not us versus them or black versus white. This is good people." versus bad people this is good people versus bad ideology and that's where we have to realize it's us against the problem and if everyone recognizes in the first place a problem exists it makes the solution much easier to achieve
0: comedy did it begin in dc la like what
1: it's a crazy story for me with comedy because here I am coming off a master's in economics and a law degree and trying to figure out what I want to do with my life simply because I wanted the education and I wanted to go into entrepreneurship and I wanted to actually, I wanted to be Puff Daddy. I wanted to be this executive producer. You want to be like things, a mogul. Exactly. Of all things music. And I realized that I wanted to be my own product. And the thing is, I can't rap or sing or dance or any of those things. So but i always had this ability to speak a truth and do it in a way where people digested it extremely easily and it made them laugh so actually what happened was i was watching television and this is why i feel representation is so important i I wasn't a kid i was i was in my last year, I was going into my last year of law school. I turn on the television and I'm watching this channel called Fuse TV. Fuse, which is basically Canadian MTV, very new at the time in the United States. And there was a music video program where a comedian, this light-skinned black guy with this fro and a great smile, whose name is Mikey Winfield, who's a friend of mine now, was doing comedy and then saying something funny and, and quirky and, and quip and introducing a music video. And I, as a 22 year old, 20 going on 23, I saw someone who looked like me. And I said, wow, if this guy can do this, I can do this too. And I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't eight, I wasn't 12, I wasn't 16, I wasn't 18, I wasn't even 21. I was at this point, an adult. By all accounts, an adult, an alcohol purchasing, consensual having adult, and something as simple as seeing someone who kind of resembled me on television made me feel that I could do something as well. That's how important representation is.
0: That moment when you saw that that guy, what, M- Winfield, Mikey
1: Winfield, Mikey Winfield, Mikey Winfield. Yeah,
0: I think it cannot be it cannot be understated. How people of color, when they just see white people, and we, we say this term whitewash, that we, when we do see someone that reminds us of us and represents us, we no longer have to ask permission that we can do that.
1: I like that. That's a great way of putting it. And it's true. It's when President Obama became president, we saw an exponential increase of Black students attending law school. That's not a coincidence. When Different World was on television, that's the spinoff of The Cosby Show in which Denise goes to a historically black right. college university and of Hillman, uh, this fictitious combination of, of Howard and, and Hampton combined. We see an exponential, exponential increase of black college students and black students who therefore subsequently attend HBCU. Representation is important. Representation is vital. Currently in Hollywood, with the increase of representation, you still have less than 1% of all entertainers being of Middle Eastern descent. You still see less than 5.8% of all entertainment being represented by Black entertainers. You still see 4% actually closer to 4.5% now. And this is, once again, not my opinion. Thankfully, the Hollywood Foreign Press and other organizations do this as part of their own personal studies. They do, yeah.
0: I Listen, this is on Kim Masters all the time. Exactly. On
1: they do it it's not it's not like uh, we create these numbers or it's the NAACP. It's they're, they're literally just doing it for the value. And it's actually they do it for its financial value to see what programs make the most. Yes, exactly. Because they need to know demographics. And, exactly. You know, exactly. And so we see this and, and yet there's still a complaint. There's still often a complaint. Oh, all our jobs are going to people of color. Well, to the privileged, equality will always feel like oppression. So as we we create equality and and this is what everyone needs to understand the most important black power does not mean white hate the only reason people think that is because white power does mean black hate it does not it simply means equality more importantly it means equity having equity is even more important than having equality that's when you get your best quote unquote employees is when they also have ownership so we're in this nation together we're all all of us all of us in this together whether we realize this or not whether we like it or not right wing left wing same bird racism sexism which is also something that's extremely undervalued and under discussed racism sexism misogyny these are all bipartisan issues This isn't Republican or Democrat, and I wish Republicans and Democrats cared as much about this nation as they do about their own political parties. I wish they cared about being an American just as much and realizing that it's not about their political party, but what's best for this nation. And what's best for this nation is equity. Everyone having a claim to ownership and having a piece of the pie. It doesn't make anyone else's piece of the pie smaller. It simply means that we just make more pie.
0: So Ron, I'm going to end it here,
1: but I
0: want you to fill in the blank of this sentence. I feel optimistic about the future of Black, Indigenous, and people of color because.
1: Because I have to.
0: It's an obligation.
1: It is, it is an obligation. I see the world as it is. And I feel that, I feel optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. And that's where you meet the, the confrontation of realism. I feel optimistic because this next generation cares more about if you like Marvel or DC than the color of your skin or the religion of your God. And so that, that's what gives me hope.
0: So I went to a couple protests and I have been so impressed by the generosity, the kindness, the determination and resilience of these kids. They are organized, they have something to say, and more importantly, they they have objectives. They want things done. They don't they're not waiting to just make, give you awareness. They want things and policies to change and it is so impressive I listen, I grew up in a different time, man, and that's why I'm doing this. I grew up with Thanksgiving with Pilgrims and Indians, you know, celebrated. I grew up with Columbus Day and not enough education about a lot of these atrocities. And these kids are bringing it to the surface and they're like wrecking with it right now, motherfucker.
1: That's all it is. It's about because we have no choice. We're we're all in this together and and the world is we're all going through the same orbit. So for better or for worse, right now, you're looking at it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Dickens was just a couple hundred years too early in his statement.
0: You know what, man? This was a good time. Thank you so much, dude.
1: I Let's try to get together sometime and just. I'd love to You about know. your comedy
0: for one thing. I've always been on the
1: Oh, well, you can only see my comedy on Instagram and Zoom now. Find but, me all over at I am I A M T E H R A N, all across the board. And on Instagram, Tehran, right? on Instagram, social media, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere you you can find someone. And of course, my uh, name is Tehran, like the capital of Iran. So if you don't know how to spell it, just watch Fox News.
0: That was Tehran. Tehran, thank you so much, man. That was a lot to keep up with. He is one of the brightest and most ambitious individuals you will meet. And also very kind. Thank you for coming on the show, man. Again, I'm Kim Noonan, the host of Multiracial White Boy. Please follow us on Instagram. Just search Instagram and go to Multiracial White Boy. And again, I can't emphasize this enough. Please share the podcast, and I'll see you next week.